0: Time is 1am, welcome to the BBC World Service, today's headlines in Zaporizhia.
1: Welcome to Thinking Deeply about Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-proof and enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Elliot Morgan. Hello. Adam Smith. Hello. And Neil Almond. Good to be back. And as you can see, well, hopefully you can see on Spotify, this is the first time we've been in an actual podcast recording studio. So to tap it first, and who knows how it's going to go. We're going to explore interventions, because I think that's a useful thing to explore before we go back to school. This is the last episode before season five kicks off on the 3rd of September. First, Elliot, what are you reading for?
2: Hey, what are you reading for? So I've recently been reading a bit of fiction, well, non- non-fiction slash fiction, recommended to me by Chris Such. It's called h h h h which comes from a, a german phrase i forget exactly what it was but it essentially meant uh himmler's brain was controlled by Heydrich. so it's about Reinhard reinhardt Heydrich, who was a uh, famous nazi he was very high up in the ss um it's an interesting read because it goes from uh the author talking about how he researched about Heydrich and in the next chapter will be him writing like conversations he imagined happened between different nazi officers and so on what about you adam what are you reading for
0: Uh, So it's the middle of the summer holidays, so I'm not really reading anything educational, uh, say, but I am reading a book called The Fires of Heaven by Robert Jordan. It's basically in lockdown. I got super into reading these like 800 page fantasy novels. Uh, I think it's book five of about 13 or 14, um, and I'm really enjoying it. But it did remind me of probably one of my favorite blog posts of all time. And uh, I think it got turned into an article in Schools History magazine, which is Mike Hill on world building. Um, and using these kind of techniques from Dungeons and Dragons and from fantasy novels and things like that uh, to talk about how we create realistic worlds in our history curriculum and how we get students to sort of put themselves in the shoes of, or not even in the shoes, but as an observer in a certain period of history. So how we build up those worlds. Uh, Robert Jordan does it really well. J.R.R. Tolkien, I was reading as well, recently does an incredible job, obviously probably the best um, that, that has ever been done in terms of world building uh so yeah that's what i've been reading thinking about fantasy thinking about uh history neil almond what are you reading for
3: keeping uh, a history theme there i've been revamping our inquiry questions for our history curriculum so to make sure they are really steeped in historical scholarship and correct pedagogy i've been reading uh secondary histories uh, what's the wisdom on which basically articles written by uh christian council and colleagues and what they do is that they attempt to distill the best of what's been thought and said about the secondary concepts of um, history so significance interpretation uh, causation consequence etc so really interesting reading that kind of little series they're only about two or three pages of length each um but they are written by christian council so they are dense, but well worth a read if you uh, really want to think about how you can change your uh, pedagogy towards history to make sure it is steeped in uh, historical uh, scholarship. Erin, what are you reading
1: for? So mine is all about the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a paper called Knowledge Over Confidence is Associated with Anti-Consensus Views on Controversial Scientific Issues. And I think a while back, I read a paper and maybe mention it in the What You're Reading For section that said that people weren't too sure if the Dunning-Kruger effect was uh, a was thing, but this paper would seem to suggest that it might be. So um, I think well worth reading. I'm looking forward to the resolution of this uh, timeless saga of whether or not it's actually a, a psychological phenomenon or not. Now The focus of this week's episode going to be interventions we almost accidentally done this rundown of things that we think are important as we prepare for september and interventions i think they're spoken about a lot but i've never heard the answer to the questions that i want to so i'm hoping you guys have got some of them today i mean i think they're a crucial part of school's operations you know what i want to know first is what's your intervention approach or your approach to intervention implementation? I don't know, Neil, if, if, can I start with you?
3: When we approach intervention, obviously we work in a step school, so listeners of the podcast before will have heard uh, Matt Swain talk about the same-day intervention uh, process that we have, which is effectively we carve out this additional time for pupils who need it through the use of whole school assembly. That whole school assembly is uh, taken by a member of SLT and could be supported by uh, additional adults, such as uh, teaching assistants, the idea being that the teachers themselves do not uh, attend that assembly and they are actually doing the interventions themselves. In terms of how we decide who needs that intervention, what that intervention is, we are very clear as to really assessing what the issue is. Now That might sound uh, quite simple but it's really important that you really kind of peel back the layers as to what is actually holding uh, children back and obviously that varies depending on subject uh, to give an example of that what I mean is that you could have a child who struggles with say a three by three digit addition in the column method but what actually is stopping that child from being successful in that is not necessarily the column method itself it's actually the fact that they are not within their number bonds to 20 so what we want to make sure actually is that our intervention isn't on 3 by 3 digit uh, addition or subtraction wherever it may be actually it really is those underlying key skills and procedural knowledge or key uh, facts that we want in long term memory uh, that are really kind of holding them back and the same kind of applies for uh, reading as well we have children who uh, can't reads will obviously first of all assess whether they need uh, phonics intervention so is there part of the code that they don't know or do they know do they not know enough of the code to actually start reading but equally if they do know some code are they fluent in that code and it might be the case that actually although they can't uh, they're not demonstrating any of these uh, quote unquote comprehension uh, skills like retrieval inference summarization etc uh It may not be the fact that their inability to do those skills is holding them back. Actually, it's perhaps that they can't read fluently. They can't read at a a rate that actually frees up enough working memory resources that they can actually begin to comprehend what they are reading. So we wouldn't obviously want those children then to go through some intervention where it's just, okay, now we're going to do loads of inference skills where actually what's holding them back is actually their reading fluency. So we're pretty... uh, in our diagnostic as to what so we're really making sure we find that a uh, bottleneck to what's holding those children what piece of conceptual knowledge or fact or skill whatever you want to call it what's really holding those children back behind what could be a very simple procedure I think that's the key for making sure your intervention is successful is actually making sure the intervention addresses what The underlying issues of what that problem is not necessarily the surface structure of what those children can't do
1: have any of you guys ever seen a model like steps which is pretty special outside of the step sort of um sphere of influence i don't know have you guys seen that
2: before i mean in my previous school we shared a little bit of that where it was during assemblies During assemblies, we would um, send teaching teaching assistants to the assembly and keep the teachers back with the children. But as far as I'm aware, I've never heard of anything as sort of accurate and as comprehensive as the STEP approach. It's about as close as you can get to a mastery approach, uh, as far as I'm aware, um, especially in terms of the diagnostic assessment of where children are at. Charles Dickens School, you must do, I imagine, because I had the luxury of being shown around charles dickens school and i yep. thought it was one of the best schools that i'd personally ever been around and i get the impression that interventions is something that you probably nail quite well yeah i mean that's right to elaborate fine. on
0: that well we are really fortunate we have this um third teacher model where each year group has two classes but three sort of full time mostly full-time or full-time teachers and um or hlta but very very experienced Uh, in each year group and and that's uh, cover for PPA but also on the days that they are not doing PPA cover or PPA themselves they are doing pretty targeted interventions so for example um, I'm thinking about the intervention timetable for next year in year five and we there's a there will be like a raft of different interventions going on it's it's pretty like uh, almost like a menu you know in terms of I have all these interventions and then we sit down in our year team meeting and think about who's going to be be the beneficiary of each one. So, for example, uh, one of the interventions that we'll do is a teacher who uh, pre-teaches the guided reading lesson um, in a really intense way so that the children have already encountered the text um, and the sort of ideas in the text before they come in. Um, Another intervention would be uh, Reknarek. Uh, for number bonds and things like that, for uh, upper key stage two. Same with phonics as well. These things that we maybe think of as like key stage one, lower key stage two, but actually using them in an intervention setting has proved really uh, successful. Same with the, the, name escapes me now, but the um, the uh, grammar intervention that came out of Daisy Christodoulou's, uh No More Marking. Um, we, we use that in interventions also fortunate to have um specialist teachers um who uh, take us off timetable in time that is not for ppa so uh, that means that like on a friday i have two hours out of class when um, i have a specialist teacher doing latin and uh, french and i would use that time to do conferencing so usually on a friday we might kind of traditionally be publishing a piece of work in english and i would take students out one at a time to conference that in the library uh or i would do one-to-one reading with students and sort of reassess where they are at with reading and talk to them about reading and spend time with them individually so i was kind of thinking like uh, about interventions and thinking oh you know well i don't know what i really have to add but we actually thinking about it we have like a really rich um set of interventions that go on so i'm really um quite excited for next year because i think That third teacher model will now be more embedded. And I know the third teacher we've got next year is the third teacher that my year group had last year. So he knows the kids. We've got interventions ready to hit the ground running. Um, Yeah, it's a good system. I think it's a strong system.
1: I mean, what comes across from your responses so far is the the importance that uh, interventions are a school-wide responsibility. They're not just the responsibility of the, the teacher.
2: What stands out to me about what Adam and Neil have just said is that... I think at the forefront, they're considering who it is, who is leading the intervention. And I think in many schools, we perhaps fall into the trap of I'm in class teaching or to send a TA outside with a child. They haven't received much training or CPD in how to lead interventions or in perhaps the science of learning or whatever it may be. And we sort of just expect there to be uh, good results. The child will obviously learn well because it's one to one teaching, which is the most effective form. However, from the models we've just heard from both Neil and Adam, it's as close to sort of a mastery approach or as effective uh, an intervention program as possible because you've got HLTAs or teachers leading the interventions and they are the best person possible to be leading it. So I imagine those models are probably far more effective than the traditional general intervention model that I think exists in most schools that I've certainly worked in myself.
0: Yeah, I think we, uh, next year, this year I haven't, but next year I am going to have a a TA in class full-time Um, because I've got will have three or four children with EHCPs, so they'll be sort of leading um, interventions in class. And I've actually always been a bit sceptical about, uh, I don't know, maybe it's like a personal preference, but having a TA in the room, sort of trying to teach on top of you, if that makes sense. So guiding a group of students who, so for example, like in a maths lesson, I would do uh, take a small group out after guided practice to see what they're doing. That's completely... Uh, great and I've always thought that was a really strong idea I never had a TA to be able to do two groups or do a group and I could be circulating that'd be really great but I don't know how you guys feel about having a TA who is kind of doing intervention at the same time as you're doing input or trying to trying to intervene in class um, because yeah I haven't had a huge amount of ex for some reason the whole of my teaching career I've never really had a, a TA in class for more than a couple of hours so that's something I'm just sort of thinking about for next year uh, so I don't know if you had any input about that
3: yeah, it can be a tricky one because when you're in that moment, it's difficult to perhaps give the teaching assistant direction that you kind of need to give them, for them to know fully what you what you are expecting. Um, watching one of your uh, notion YouTube videos today, Adam, uh, you know communication is key, and because of the way that uh, TA contracts uh, usually work, it they come in. Five minutes before the kids arrive, and they leave like ten minutes after the kids have left. So having that time to have that conversation with them about what you expect in each lesson and how they can best support the individuals that you may have in mind, or what they can do that's going to, you know, in some cases, not counteract what you're trying to teach them. I mean, I remember when I was doing some work experience to get into uni, being a, a TA and to get what um the kids were actually learning but acting as the ta i was like well i don't really understand this either so i'm just going to teach them column edition because i know they'll be successful which is definitely you know not what the teacher wanted them to do so like you unless we find ourselves in a situation where we can find that time for tas and that tends to mean being able to fund tas for a little bit longer uh, i agree i find I find it difficult but not because the teaching assistants and the people are incapable of that it's just the fact that that we don't have the time to really go through the fine detail of what we expect and how they can actually support them unless you want to go down the route of almost scripting a intervention that they can do in that time which that work-life balance and the other negatives that go with that
1: I think there's also the issue that when they're not in class with you, they're missing out on the time that they're entitled to, you know, getting taught by a qualified teacher. You know, so if I were going to intervene, it would be around and outside the hours of the the school day. You know, for instance, that first bit in the morning, where you know, if you could write to parents, compel them to bring their children in maybe 30 minutes before the school day starts, then you've got a good chance of sort of supporting them before you have to actually teach them in the classroom. Because I think I always go on the, the you know the Singaporean model. I think I've banged on this before. The most qualified person is the person who works with the weakest pupils or the pupils who are struggling the most, you know. So they funnel kids out in primary one and then they give them intensive, you know, the core concepts support and then funnel them back in year two or primary two, primary three, you know, so that no child is minor certainly that's the That's the intention, you know? So when I think about interventions, I'm not thinking about someone doing something while I'm in class, you know, maybe teaching assistants or someone on on, an additional level can help support pupils access to material. You know, for instance, if children find it difficult to organize the resources, then maybe someone can help them with those supplementary materials, like the BS 10 equipment, the Cuisinero rods. You know, because it might be a personal organization issue that the child has rather than a, a mathematical one. But I, I do think that when I'm teaching, I want all the children in my class learning from me so that they have at least the opportunity to get what I'm talking about. Because I, I you know, I always tell the kids I don't say anything unless it's extremely important for their education. You know, and even if they don't get it first time round, I'm pitching to allow everyone access and challenge everyone at the same time. So it's worth, you know, about 40 minutes that we have for our maths since that they're engaged
2: with it. So in your question, I Adam, mean, you talked about the idea of uh, um, somebody taking taking a child out to do an intervention during your input. And I think the two things that come to mind for me there are the quality of, um, the teacher quality of the person leading the intervention and then the monitoring of said intervention. So I think in your school, I think it's probably fine because you said you've got HLTAs, they've been trained. They seem like they're going to be good enough um, I don't mean this as being critical of TAs. Every TA I've ever worked with is lovely, but some don't have any experience in, they don't have a training qualification, they're not HLTAs, so there will be variance in quality delivered. The other issue being monitoring. If they're just outside of a room, TAs can sometimes be a bit too leading in their questions, a bit too over-supportive because they want to see the child succeed, and, and you're not there to monitor that. So you can never truly say whether the intervention has been as successful as you may like. you Um,
0: you know that from your own so I'm sure you've had moments where you've been like okay so six plus four is
2: it's yeah and
0: you're sort of doing exactly you're like come on come on get this for me but it's not quality teaching it's just like we we need to get we need
2: to get here yeah and I I agree with Kieran in the sense that like I'm that well I think I'm probably a bit of a control freak where I'd want the child in the class and me delivering the input so I know that I know what they've heard and then it means that going forward when we revisit this material I know exactly what they've heard from me so I know the cues to give I know what I can ask I know what they should know and so on whereas if another person's leading that and i haven't even seen it go on then i can't be sure that they've been taught xyz even though that's what the intention of the, the intervention would have been um and then yeah scripting so i know some phonics schemes like read write ink are probably easier to deliver because it can be very scripted um or letters right. and sounds or, direct
0: instruction maths programs you know, yeah
2: those and those. um and i, I imagine where the, the beauty of that is that you don't have to pay for loads of training and that anybody could p- perhaps pick up and go with it and then it might lead to a sort of solid, consistent level of efficacy across the school. Um, but is that feasible in every intervention we do? Not, not everything has a scheme or, or a script to, to go from.
0: I think it's not so much they would be... Uh, they would be uh, I don't think they would be taken out during the input. I think that it's, it's that case. Um, I have had it in the past where TAAs feel they need to like, layer on top of your work in the classroom... Which can be a bit disruptive. So um they're trying to sort of intervene during your input. And yeah, I don't know how common that is, but it's something that I've sort of thought about. Well, uh you used to be a TA, right? So No. No? Yeah, no. We,
2: Chris, you know, Chris Chris did a lot little bit. So oh Chris,
0: sorry. Um so what was I talking about? So yeah, so layering on top. So thinking about um, you know, what is because if we're saying that we don't want kids to be taken out during our interventions but we might have uh, for example um a ta like in my class who's there to support the four or three or four kids who's on the hcp which is going to be my situation next year so are we saying that it feels a bit like if we're going to be do you know maybe maybe like 20 minutes of input here 20 minutes of input there are they just sitting there listening to what you're saying i mean if i had a choice that would probably be yeah i would just say yeah just sit there and, and listen um, but is that does anyone disagree? Does anyone think they should be doing something else during during the input?
3: I think it depends. In thinking about how that's whatever subject it is and how that subject might be structured in terms of how hierarchical it is. Um, I think One interesting thing that might be worth talking about is I'm sure we've all been there where we do have. Uh, say we're in upper key stage two, we've all worked there and we're perhaps working on uh, fractions but we know actually we have children who can't number bond to 10 or within 20. We can do things that get those children through that lesson and perhaps they might perform during that lesson, but realistically we leave those lessons fully well knowing that they have no conceptual understanding of what is happening because we're just working three or four years beyond them. So I'm wondering, and it's always a kind of a debate I have with uh myself and it's always an internal one that we have at school as you know yes we want those children to be having the uh, input from the teacher but if we know what um, we plan to teach is so far beyond what they can conceptually, conceptually gra- grasp are we actually not uh doing a disservice to those children by not saying ah oh, do you know what maybe you should uh go outside for 40 minutes and do um capital d capital i uh you know connecting mass concepts With this TA, and as uh, you mentioned, Morgan, there's that safety net element of it there being scripted, and you can give it to someone, and you know there's going to be that kind of bare level of quality input
1: because those uh, programs were so well thought out and sequenced. I think you make a very good point there the fact that if there's a massive difference, like say you're talking about linear equations or something like that, and a child not being able to number bond, you've got a pretty steep hill for them to climb before they're going to get anywhere near it. Maybe not even linear equations, you know, something from the algebra from year six, but were possible, I always think about it in terms of, you know, I think it's the distinction between a structure and an operation, you know, so say the kids don't know those key bonds, so we can give them something that can support them in recalling the key bonds while they're learning. But if I want them to remember the concept of aggregation, I can do that without any sense of number or well, without focusing on the number, you know, because essentially I've got two separate con- um, two separate groups, maybe more, and I want to combine those two. If I can get that sense through, and then when it comes to independent practice, well, they've got some sort of scaffold to help them. And I think we can allow them access to the content, but also at the same time, we're giving them daily number one intervention. We're giving them daily, daily multiplication, you know, you could explore the idea of perimeter. they might not be able to accurately calculate the perimeter, but you can have a sense of the distance around a shape. so I think it depends on the content it depends on the on the gap because if you've got six years' difference you know or a child- you know the big thing is that you can sometimes go to schools and every teacher feels like they've got the worst class in the school, and every child is working at year one when they're really in year five, and that's just not the case you know and it's you've got to really think about the quality of the teaching that is being delivered on a daily basis, how much access it's providing to people's two mathematical concepts and giving them something like the Angleman resource that they use at Hawke's farm and Angel Oak and things. And do you guys use it at your,
3: at your school, Neil? No, not yet.
1: That should be a last resort. You know, when Matt came on the podcast to talk about mastery, most people were first same day intervention, the group funneled down over time. But some kids need a more intensive intervention. You know, you'll know, you hear Mark McCord say five, that's 5% of kids nationally. And I think that's true. 5% of children have some sort of profound need. That means they can't access the maths curriculum with the year group they're supposed to. But I think we've got to ask a ton of questions about what we're doing in the classroom before we go anywhere near that. But I do agree that in a situation where a child is maybe six, seven years behind their peers, you might be best doing something along those lines.
3: I think uh this conversation will only become more apparent I think come September when uh parent pledge is introduced where we need to be demonstrating to parents what I don't have the exact quote, but I'm pretty certain they're pretty heavy in what um school what the Department of Education has said to schools is that if these children are behind, we need to be providing their children uh, an evidence based Uh, intervention to make sure they can catch up. So I think it'll be an interesting conversation to perhaps revisit when uh, schools get uh, to grips with uh, the parent pledge and how that's all going to work out.
1: I mean, it seems like these days it wouldn't be an episode of the podcast without me challenging one of the pillars of society. But, you know, a lot of these children who are behind are behind because there isn't the funding in their early development. You know, a lot of the things that should happen between zero and three, zero and five, you know, the things that support parents who don't know how to parent have been scrapped or in, you know, I think giving schools a responsibility to solve something that could have been solved when the people, you know, children who aren't spoken to from zero, they're normally behind their peers. Parents who know you speak to a child, they will pick things up pretty quickly because they're hearing the language, they are getting a sense of what it means to be human. You know, that's where this issue is. You know, So, I mean, this is not related to the conversation at all, but if we're making parents have a pledge, it should be I'm going to speak to my child from zero, rather, or rather than I'm going to expect my school to fill the gaps that perhaps I should have um, done something to stop forming in the, in the first place. And I don't know. Adam's rolling his eyes there, um, as if to say I'm in trouble for mentioning this. But yeah. you know, I, you know, I, I've worked in the most disadvantaged areas in the southeast of England for fifteen, sixteen years, and you know, I if I if there's one pattern I've noticed it's that where children have been neglected. Where they haven't been spoken to from birth that's where they're that's when they start school 18 months behind their peers and then by the end of reception is 36 months and then by the time you get to the end of year six you're seven years behind and then you're into secondary school
0: that was the subtlest eye roll i've ever given and it got picked up uh, this is the joy of being in person i think um it was an eye roll because i knew i'd have to go on record and say i massively agree with you that's what it was it was just it's not like the most wildly popular opinion but also i think schools are doing a lot um to kind, kind of coming around to the idea like we've just launched a hub for zero to two in our local area so on um oh, i can't remember which day it is now wednesday i think uh we have um parents come and we provide them with just a space to do sort of vaguely educational things with their kids but really just just support development there's a pediatric uh, nurse there from the local uh, sort of hospital um, who comes and, and supports and answers any questions. And, you know, the the question really for schools is um, how do you target that? Because that's an intervention in a form. That's the earliest intervention you can give, really. How do you target that intervention uh, to make sure it's reaching parents who need it? Because I would guess that if most schools set up a hub like that, it's going to appeal to the kind of parents who are already doing all the things you talked about. Um, and it is actually difficult to um, those parents who aren't doing those things. There is, like, systematic... Things going on behind the scenes why it's not i would say nine times out of ten just sort of, sort of personal attitude of neglect towards their children but also i know you know just from my personal experience that you're completely on the ball there because uh well you know from a really personal point of view me and my three uh two sisters uh we grew up in very like materially poor conditions um went to schools that were you know the the area i grew up in if you look at it is in, like the bottom sort of five percent in the country in terms of uh, income and uh, the schools that I went to sort of reflected that so we we weren't given any of the privileges I was in and out of care when I was a child My parents had you know pretty um, serious issues uh, going on in their lives but both of them did um, value education and both of them t- spoke to us from a young age there were books around the house Um, read to us did all these things and um, me and my three uh, keep saying three-ish now how many siblings I have me and my two sisters um, uh, have all gone off to sort of Russell Group Universities and and done all right and not that's that like (laughs) a singular sign of of doing well in life because I didn't get my undergraduate degree from one but um, we've all we've all done fine in life we're all pretty happy settled um, comfortable uh, people now and I think that there's you know so just purely from a personal point of view I rolled my eyes because I have to agree.
1: <laughs> I didn't I didn't realise your undergraduate wasn't from Russell Group. How did you get
0: past Betton? Yeah, sorry. How did like, you get in here? This is why I wasn't on the first <laughs> season. This is
1: <laughs> um, I mean, before we move on to the second question. <laughs> it sounds like there's a mixture of things happening here. Sometimes teachers are delivering and sometimes we're using published schemes. What's your preference? If we maybe just go quickly round the sort of horseshoe. I mean is should it be bought in because they they can cost quite a lot of money and we'll get to that in a bit but is it a case that teachers are inventing these resources themselves
2: if the scheme that's been bought in is is in is been like very well sequenced and and well resourced and it can save teachers a lot of time they can take it and run with it or they can take it and use it as like the skeleton to add the flesh to then why not um, because interventions are very time heavy and they can often be very like finance heavy so if it were to meet those criteria, then why not buy it?
3: Could be uh, subject dependent. So we use Sounds Right for our phonics scheme, and that's pretty it's kind of semi-scripted in how that's uh, laid out. So if we thought that a child needed more uh, phonics intervention specifically, I would not necessarily want those want to be doing some sort of separate phonics scheme following that because as far as understand from the literature you know good phonics will be good phonics so it makes sense for them to follow that scope and sequence what that child might need is not necessarily something different but actually just more time to embed uh whatever it is that that intervention is trying to achieve so i think before uh schools perhaps rush to buy something actually just consider that time element it might just be that for whatever reason analogy of Jenga, something's missing uh, towards that bottom end of of the Jenga tower. They might just need more time to fill that particular gap rather than something completely new. And unless you really kind of understand what you're looking for in intervention, I think it'd be quite easy to type into Google English intervention and go, oh, yeah, that looks all right, without actually fully giving the time that and research needed to go into actually finding a particular high quality intervention.
0: Um, yeah, I think basically you can divide uh, interventions up into two sort of groups. I'm going to use um, an educational swear word now, which uh, is going to be picked up in beautiful <laughs> quality on these very expensive microphones. Um, because we have sort of interventions, particularly at the end of Key Stage 2, for cuspy Ooh.
2: children. <laughs> oh, down, my
0: <laughs> So, you know, kids who we want to push over into expected standard or into greater depth. Um, and those interventions are probably best just being sort of pre-teaching and re-teaching um, with uh, teachers or LTA, So you don't really need like a structured intervention there. I mean, I, I say that with a lot of confidence. That's the approach that most schools take. So, but where you've got a more profound need or a more fundamental need, um, something like a, a structured phonics program, a structured uh, DI program. Um, I think RECNARAC is, is really um, good quality uh, intervention and that can be quite scripted. Uh, in terms of what you're doing there, um, those sorts of things, I think it does benefit from doing some training, getting some of that on board. But yeah, the cuspy, uh interventions, I would, I would say that teaching and pre-teaching is is really strong because that way they're going to be in the class for the for the main part of the intervention, and you're just sort of like, yeah, you're giving them a bit of extra time to consider what you're doing.
2: A nice word for our um, ASM ASMR <laughs> is
3: some kind of cusp.
2: <laughs> I mean I think Adam you were on
1: that quiz episode with Garth Metcalf and he put that into room 101 which we're going to revisit you know the listeners on who subscribe to our ko will be treated to two episodes this week You know, and the next one will be completely unedited we're going to do what room 101 we're going to do a crystal ball for 2223 and then we're going to ask a few of their or answer a few of their questions so just a big thank you to everyone who sponsors some ko and to be honest everyone who listens as well I mean it means a an awful lot and I mean Neil, Adam and Elliot have all got new microphones so I think you guys should say thank you if, if nothing else. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah thank you very much everyone. Now our second question, if you can believe it or not, um, is all about how we assess the quality of intervention. You know, So when you're looking at the impact, how do you know if an intervention has been successful or unsuccessful and whether or not it was the intervention that was at fault or if there's something else going wrong i mean do you elliot first
2: that that raises an interesting point which i've sort of been thinking about since um adam mentioned the zero to two hub is that in, interventions in a sense i mean they're they're a part of school life and I think they always will be they can't be necessarily completely negated but we should be thinking of intervention almost as like a last resort for one of a better phrase be thinking: Is an intervention needed because the quality of teaching wasn't good enough, or like the needs, uh, the needs of an SEN child aren't being met properly? Is it that the curriculum is too crowded, or or, or is there something else at play here that should be considered or um, addressed first before just jumping into an intervention? Um, because if it's not addressed, then obviously you're gonna have to keep doing interventions again, and again, and again, and it's just it's never gonna go away. Um, so yeah, quite an, an interesting point there.
0: Are there children who will always need an intervention in year eleven. So are there children who just by their nature, by their physical makeup, will need interventions in order to succeed at school? Um I honestly don't know. I do not know. I don't know if it's possible that actually the best school in the country just has no interventions. Like is you know um it's really difficult because it, it's a much deeper question than just like well, I think assessment is always a deeper question. I don't think assessment assessment of anything at school is is never as simple as, as you might think it would be. On a more practical level, I think it would be um, good to have an emphasis on interventions as part of a sort of uh, CPD programme, maybe for a term or maybe for a year. Um, we sometimes run parallel CPD for TAs at the same time that we're doing CPD for staff. I think... I might be wrong, but I think we pay overtime for the TAs to attend that because it's out of teaching hours. Um, and that that's a really good opportunity to improve the quality of interventions if you're using TAs. Uh, and that can be part of sort of coaching as well. So coaching, I think, is often thought of as something for teachers, and particularly new teachers, but um, support staff should always have coaching made available to them. So sh- should we be using coaching to improve the quality of interventions? I would argue definitely yes. I think that could be actually a really strong something like instructional coaching and CPD tailored um would be a really good approach so yeah there's a really fluffy philosophical answer there but also a slightly more practical one but
3: just to come in on what uh Adam said going back to our model of uh, same day intervention we kind of flipped that slightly on its head for our um TAs so we don't have same day intervention on Friday that's when we have a celebration assembly and we've decided as our school no we actually think that's important enough that all children should be there to celebrate an achievement help with the culture of the school Um, but instead so instead of the uh, TAs helping in that assembly actually what we do is that the teachers go to that assembly and we actually provide some training there for the TAs which are then this assembly happens at nine o'clock so they're all unless they're ill they're all going to be in there they're all on you know, their quoted time anyway so we've found that that's actually been a really useful way of actually making sure that we can say to TAs as far as our offer if you want to come to our school you'll get uh, you know training in whatever it's quite a flexible model it's responsive so if we see um, that some mass interventions needs a bit of tweaking down to actually we probably need to look out where staff stand on the playground for uh, break times and lunch times to make sure that we minimize uh, behavior. We kind of have that half an hour a week kind of built into our timetable for uh, our TA staff to give them that high quality training. And I think it's something that we tried uh, last year. I know we're definitely carrying that on this academic year. So I'm really kind of looking forward to seeing what a whole year of that. Um, looks like and so far all the uh, responses from the RTA has been positive knowing that they have that half hour of dedicated time to improve their practice because believe it or not they want it going back to the uh, question how can we actually you know make sure that these are successful I think it's been really clear with what you want from that intervention uh, having written numerous targets for uh, children who need interventions very easy to write some kind of really broad target that actually you think is quite quite achievable, but when you actually think and break it down, it's not. So obviously timetables, for example, uh, so we might have a target, you know, so-and-so needs to know the seven times table. That sounds kind of achievable, but I think you need to be really specific as to what you mean by them being able to achieve the seven times table does that mean that they can use their fingers to work it out but you're happy for them to still take you know six or seven seconds to work out what five times seven is? Are you happy with them actually knowing that learning all the times table up to 12 times whatever it might be is too much so we want to break it down even further. So I really think that breaking these interventions down into the smallest possible steps and avoiding large broad terms can really kind of help make sure that you're uh, interventions are successful because you're quantifying what it is. So I've always kind of found that um, a realistic uh, time limit is quite useful if it's something like times table. So they will be able to recall uh, seven times table and perhaps their first target might be, you know, in uh, you know order ordinality. So like they have to do it. They can do it like one times seven, two times seven, three times seven. But actually they can't do it, you know, in a mixed up order. That might be the next intervention. So really kind of being as specific and granular as you can with these interventions, I think, uh, provide you with the most success because it gives you that raw data to know that this is what I'm expecting of them. Yes, they can. No, they can't. And there's no kind of uh, ambiguity as to, well, have they actually achieved this? Because they can do it, but actually they still need a times table grid for nine times seven. So, yeah, my advice is be as granular as you can. And when you think you've gone granular, go granular again.
2: I 100% agree with that. What came to my mind when you asked the question in terms of like assessing how successful an intervention has been? I think often we think of just checking, has the people learn it? But a huge part of the assessment process is sort of monitoring and, and scrutinizing the delivery of the intervention itself. Like, have you ever seen a member of SLT go and observe a TA deliver an intervention? I mean, you may have, I personally have never seen that happen. I think they're often just left to their own devices if a TA is, is leading it. Um, and sometimes an intervention could be running for a term, two terms before you even look to assess the result of it. Has it been effective? That's a lot of time for a child to be out of class or be taking part in an intervention without necessarily knowing if it's been successful or not. And I think that ties back into what we were saying earlier about perhaps having this scripted interventions or even like a curriculum for interventions itself. That would sort of negate not completely gate, but perhaps limit the need for assessing interventions as as frequently if you knew it was going to be more consistently delivered?
0: You have to force yourself to reassess uh, interventions like on a regular basis. So um, make it part of your team meeting every week or part of whatever meeting put on whatever agenda just to look at those interventions again and say, are they useful? Because uh, the best interventions are quite fluid, I think. And and actually my favourite sort of interventions that we do are like picket, on the day don't have a set group every week necessarily don't have a set topic every week uh, you know sometimes that works i think where there's a more fundamental need but where it's the pre and reteach stuff that definitely is yeah, that needs to be more flexible so yeah don't don't have the same interventions in uh july as you have in september that's not <laughs> that's not healthy
1: i mean that, that question did come to mind i mean should the schools have a gatekeeper you know someone you know it's typically the senco in my experience who's having oversight of this But there's normally so many children that it's questionable how much insight you can possibly have. You know, you can't know them all in depth, you know, you're relying on the, I suppose, if you have a system and it's effective and it's got teachers feeding back to the senko and stuff, that that can work. But what role do gatekeepers play in your school? It sounds, Elliot, like you don't necessarily have someone in that situation if, if you can go two, three terms without assessing the impact of an intervention.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I can't really speak towards experience of that, but something that comes to mind is, is, is there somebody thinking about how well the intervention itself ties into the classroom teaching that is going on? If this is something that a child visits one time a week in the afternoon on a Friday, and then it's never sort of revisited in class, then is, is it being as embedded as well as we would like? Um, and that's where perhaps a sort of curriculum in itself of interventions, which ties in well to what's going on in class. So the teacher being aware of what's been said, what's happened, what's been learned, what they didn't, uh, understand well what tasks they were given it is an essential part of making sure that the not only the intervention itself is successful but the assessment of that intervention is uh, is robust we
3: have historically kind of used our senco so we'll set out um, an activity schedule that uh, slt need to try to complete uh, within a, a week we update that every week uh, emphasis on the try because things always come up that means uh safeguarding for example if you to be observing an intervention but safeguarding comes up obviously you have to drop that for the safeguarding what we try to do to kind of go back to elliot's point is that this will be a topic of conversation in our pupil progress meetings that we have with staff uh, every, every term so and so there's that expectation there that teachers come prepared with that information if they know that they they know which uh Children have been having interventions, and if they believe that there is a particular barrier that's not so insurmountable that can be uh, overcome with perhaps a three, four-week intervention, you know, that's their time to come to us and say, "This is this issue is uh, affecting the progress of child X." Uh, the onus is then on us to kind of, when we put the intervention timetable, we change our intervention timetable. Uh, every full term but we review it um, every half term so that kind of gives us that time to hopefully kind of give that fluidity whilst also kind of making sure that the uh, member of staff who's teaching those children have uh, a bit of input as well Um, but obviously we have those children who perhaps have uh, EHCPs as part of um, that process they need to have uh, specific targets as well they obviously might go a little bit longer than um, that term as long as we can see progress if After six or seven weeks, we know that uh, Child X isn't getting anywhere near the uh, five times table. Then obviously doing it again for another six or seven weeks
0: is not a particular use of time. I think for us, a lot of the emphasis falls on uh, the year lead or the class teacher uh, to be monitoring those interventions. So as Neil says, it comes through uh, pupil progress uh, is where we would discuss them. There are obviously children with EHCPs or even children with a recognised SEND uh, need that don't have EHCPs who will have um, interventions as part of their um, education plan and then I think in the case of an EHCP that would make it legally binding that those interventions have to take place uh, so that would be the responsibility ultimately of the SENCO um, and there's two separate sort of review processes then so you've got pupil progress that concerns all pupils, but then you've also got our learning plan reviews that would be pupils with a, a registered SEN need I mean the problem is and it affects every school, is that those children with a registered SEN need, and I'm sure we probably, everyone would have to acknowledge this, don't necessarily map perfectly onto those children who actually have increased needs or who, who actually have what we would sort of diagnose as SEM. We all know of students who are dyslexic, well, who have dyslexic traits or have you know, traits of dyscalculia or whatever, but but there's just for one reason or another never going to be uh, a diagnosis of that um so i prefer the model where it falls the emphasis falls more on the teacher and more on pupil progress and more on the lead over it being the responsibility of the senco because then i think a lot of students who should be the focus of interventions are going to get missed out if it is just the senco's responsibility
1: i mean that makes a whole lot of sense because yeah i I think it is even when i was asking the question it's too much for one person to to keep track of i mean elliot has just sort of given me the nod here um do you guys have a Ideal intervention in mind. You know, what, what would the features of an ideal intervention include?
0: I mean, an
2: ideal. Can I like an intervention program? Oh. What would that look like? The God. ideal intervention program in a school. That's I mean, the steps model is fairly. It is, but that's what. Like, if that's what we're aspiring to, what is it that we're not that's doing? Not... <laughs>
0: my answer was literally just gonna be my favorite intervention today <laughs> <laughs> is when i take children out of class and i read their work with them that's really lovely and i really enjoy doing that so let's just do more of that because it's personally um i think to be honest uh there's uh sort of models of excellence about but like this is such a fluid topic that i don't think there could be a, a perfect system and i do not just mean that in sort of like Oh, well, this is a great answer to this question. I'm going to get out of actually giving an answer. Uh, I mean, genuinely, like, it doesn't work. Even across a school, even across two classes in a year group, or two students in a class, there's not a, an ideal intervention. So, actually, probably the best system is one with a lot of flexibility. Probably the best system is one that uses a range of different approaches, both scripted and unscripted, targeting both like everyone really from your cuspy. Uh, sort of higher retainers um, down to children who have quite fundamental learning needs. Um, so an intervention, I think we're increasingly moving away from an interventions, uh, from interventions that just target the sort of um, the children with the most fundamental needs, to a broader model of interventions. My only concern is that in a lot of schools, probably my, maybe my own included, um, that is a focus at the end of Key Stage Two when we know we've got the big S coming around the corner. Um, and that should actually maybe be a model across the school where we have um, a broader spectrum of children receiving interventions because, yeah, as much as I hate the word cusp, it does speak to um, a, uh, a sort of a subgroup of children who I think probably the reason they're cuspy is because they've been ignored until halfway through Year 5.
3: Yeah, I think the time to do that is definitely that famous Year 3 slump where... They get through the uh, year two teacher marches them through key stage uh, one sats and then the teacher kind of gives a whole big sigh. but because that year two teacher has been under pressure to perform I think then that yeah year three there's that element of, and the transition that goes from key stage one to key stage two as well but yeah definitely and I think from my experience kind of uh, having taught year four Year five and year six and taking some of the same children up throughout those uh, year groups. The cuspy ones uh, at year six, uh, you can tell which ones are going to be cuspy when they're in year three and year four, which is quite sad, but you can. So, yeah, definitely. I think my ideal intervention, if my politician answer, not one to wait until... uh, December, January of year six, but actually get
1: there in September of year three. I'm really looking forward to finding out what the word CUSPY sounds like whenever you guys are ASMR down the, the mic. I wonder how that reaction will be. Now, if you've enjoyed that, do let us know in the, in the comments on uh, on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. I mean, I've got an actual answer to this one. Um, I think any intervention that takes account of the principles of instruction is ideal for pupils who struggle in most, if not all subjects, you know, I think where we take account of those principles and we are very clear in what we want to teach, how we want to get it across, then I think the there's an increased likelihood of success for those pupils, you know, there's only one I could think of that actually works in that way, um, and I'm not actually in their employee just yet, so I can say this without any, you know, sort of, you know, reticence about being, you know, a corporate shill or anything out there. Cause I'm definitely not. I and mean, you know, no one pays us to do it, say, recommend anything on this show.
0: Today's episode is sponsored <laughs> by whoever. My big, is about to my IPA. <laughs> um,
2: yeah,
1: it, it's a complete mass shooter and particularly in key 2 too, you know, where pupils have a, a decent, they can read a little, then it's perfect for them to work alongside what you're doing in class. And like, maybe you've used it, you know, this isn't necessarily the, uh, the time or place to go into how it works but i do know that you're you've taken calls from people you have spoken to people you've written about how you've got it to work for you and you might hopefully speak about it in the near future but um yeah using tutor with your pupils who struggle with mathematics if we had something like that or other subjects where people struggle that, that would be that would be fantastic
3: what a game changer it would be
2: so it's interesting you said that because that ticks a lot of the stuff we mentioned earlier on like i presume it's like scripted in a sense that it's on the screen it's well sequenced it, it um targets i mean you'll be able to comment on this better because i haven't used it but does it not like i assume it does like diagnostic assessment and then it targets those areas is that right
1: yeah precisely
2: i mean yeah, yeah it will literally find out what the child doesn't know it will
1: you, know, you have to do a couple of diagnostics um, but it will give you a ballpark you know most of the kids i worked with they were working on stage one you know there was no um, neil had variants in his responses but we chose the 20 percent of kids who we felt needed to catch up after the pandemic
0: We we were talking about this the other day in the context of uh, Rishi Sunak because he was saying that he wanted AI to revolutionize education. And I was saying, well, you know, actually, there is kind of a space for AI in having a targeted mass program that's based on... um you know, uh, different forms of assessment. You can tailor it. And uh, I can't remember if it was you, Kieran, someone, probably Kieran, corporate shill. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I'll start that again so you can cut out a no, bit. No, no, keep it in,
1: keep it in. Um,
0: so, yeah, I was talking to this, I think it was with you, Kieran, about, uh, and you said, you know, well, that sounds like like complete maths. Um, uh, we use maths, no problem, which uh, I love, quite a big maths no problems Dan. but it is a textbook you know it's a it's a linear progression and i think there's space for a tailored um maths intervention program based on um i don't know if it, i can't remember we were you even saying like is this actually even ai but based on ai um that would you know actually flex to the needs of the children um and um yeah you're probably just about to say yes that is exactly exactly what her complete maths tutor is
1: um i mean i yeah i th- I don't know about AI, but it certainly has a very, very complex software running underneath it. And the code is, it, I think the aim eventually is that it will be completely responsive to pupils and will have so many nodes in so many different parts of the complete mathematics offering, you know, like the classroom, the tutoring, the CPD, that actually everything will feed this. You know, so it, it might, I don't I think AI has to be learning independent of its programmer, doesn't it? You know, so I don't think it does that but I think it's responsive to the input that it gets. I know I was joking about being a corporate chill and stuff, but I was recommending this stuff before. You know, I got one of my schools. We used it last year. We used it with 120 of our pupils and we saw great things and you know, I know that Neil, you've seen some great stuff from it uh, too. and that's only year one. Hopefully, it'll just go from strength to strength, you know, so I have, I have no, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? And It's not regret. It's not remorse.
2: You
1: know, I'll make no bones about, re- about recommending it. It's, uh, I do think it could be a game changer and it's built on principles really in fact of instruction. What don't they know? Fill the gap, move on to the next bit. And then eventually they're back up and that, that
2: second gap is uh,
0: it's
2: gone. Is it, it is the thing that we all made videos for? It is. Yeah. That, so I mean, we're that's... all corporate shows. <laughs>
0: yeah, I would just like to state that I'm an independenceist. Uh, I've never done any work for complete maths and I probably never
2: will. However, if uh, complete maths is listening and it is open to side <laughs> hustles. Um, should I talk about sort of my ideal? ideal intervention program yeah of course uh, i've just been scribbling stuff down based on what we've said so far and, and sort of other things so kieran just said principles instruction i think that is like the, the basis of any good intervention is that whoever's leading it whether it be a computer video or a human being is that, that it has to be built on the, the way the science of learning it has to be structured well has to understand cognitive load etc cetera, etc cetera. um i think if it is to be a let's i mean let's talk about a, a standard uh, school intervention which is mostly human ed obviously Um, I think the person has to be trained. I think they need to have regular CPD. I think ideally they've got intimate knowledge of the national curriculum. I think they need to have a thorough understanding of uh, special educational needs because in my experience, that's where most interventions tend tend to lie. I think they need to be held accountable. And I think it needs to go higher than a classroom teacher. It's very easy to get quite pally with your teaching assistant if they're the one leading the intervention and and to not really hold them to account as much as they, they should be. Um, so in that sense, it also needs a rigorous monitoring system from SLT. I think there needs to be regular assessment of the child, so that you're not just running an intervention for two terms and then finding out that it's had absolutely no effect or it's been had a negative effect. Ideally, a good intervention program is also not only reactive, which I think most interventions are, but proactive. So like that's the mastery model, isn't it? Often it involves like pre-teaching before the the teachings occurred, in class, especially before the mass mastery model. Um, and then I, then I toyed here, I have just put a question mark, scripted. I think if you've got somebody who understands principles of instruction, they've got the intimate subject knowledge, the pedagogical content knowledge, they know the child, they understand the child's needs, and I don't think scripting is necessary, necessary um, and, and can just sort of be a, a side point. That, that, for me, would be my ideal sort of intervention program. I think it sort of needs its own curriculum, essentially, or it needs to be treated like a curriculum of its own. And ideally perhaps an SLT member, as you hinted at earlier, like the gatekeeper who's in charge of that, is there somebody monitoring every assessment across the school, uh, every intervention across the school, making sure that these children who, who are being taken out of class are being taken out for good reason and, and it's having the impact that they deserve?
0: My only concern about that is it sounds like something that's going to be jammed onto the end of an assistant head's job description. They are in charge of assessment, maths programs da da da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and interventions. And I think it probably needs a bit more... You need someone who's properly focused on interventions to actually make that a useful uh, job description.
2: I mean, I guess that highlights the need for the people leading the interventions to really be trained quite well because then it doesn't necessarily need to be monitored as as closely, does it? If you can trust the quality of the intervention, then you don't need to have such a rigorous monitoring system in place. Yeah, I mean, I think that's perfect that you've summed up the conversation because I know people will
1: be scribbling lots and lots of notes as they go through this. But actually, you've sort of summed up here are the things that we think are important in terms of intervention. Here are the things that you could possibly you know, have some success with in, in 22, 23 and beyond. And um, you know, so, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that more because I think, uh, you know, you captured the conversation really, really succinctly there. Um, and I was thinking earlier on, because you were saying about how, you know, you like to prepare. We've normally got a Moritz list in some of the episodes. And um, that was that was probably the peak and perfect Works
2: list. Well, um any listeners listening, hopefully that makes up for me accidentally pausing the recording earlier. Um, it will be seamless, as Kieran would have edited it perfectly, so this will not seem like two files edited together, but I accidentally did press pause. so <laughs> Hopefully that's made up for that egregious error. Was it just pause? Well, I think the uh, space button, because I went to point at that, and I think my little finger tapped. The... Ah, because if it was, it, was it was just
1: pause, it'll be one file. We'll, we'll find out afterwards. Um, yeah. I mean... It's been fascinating talking to you guys as always and um, if you are on Kofi, then you should be able to check out the link to the bonus episode of this but also to do is say thank you very much for joining me thank you very much elliot thank you for having me thank you adam thank you thank you neil thank you and everyone at home until next time thanks for listening
0: <laughs> the Beatles? <laughs> oh, <that'd> be...
2: <laughs> right, that is definitely going isn't it? That says <laughs>